the crane itself does wonderful work um, by having all this intrinsic repair machinery but we have to you know furthermore stimulate it at the right time that we get something out of it or even make it better this is parsing science the unpublished stories behind the world's most compelling science as told by the researchers themselves i'm ryan watkins and i'm doug lay each year over 15 million people worldwide have strokes of these roughly a third die and another third are permanently disabled Today, we're joined by Anna-Sophia Wall, a neuroscientist with the Brain Research Institute in Zurich at the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology, abbreviated ETH in German, as well as a physician with the Central Institute of Mental Health in Mannheim, Germany. Anna-Sophia spoke with us about her research into stimulating nerve growth after a stroke has been suffered. This episode is sponsored by We Share Science. When researchers are curious about what is happening in science, they go to We Share Science to explore video abstracts uploaded by other researchers. You can search their vast catalog of video abstracts to learn about the latest scientific findings, or you can share your research with the world. Whether your research is in progress or already published, at We Share Science, you can share your science and grow your impact. Explore the world's research at WeShareScience.org. Now, back to Parsing Science. Here's Anna Sophia Wall. So, hi, I'm Anna Sophia. I'm from Germany. I grew up in Germany and um, I always wanted to become a medical doctor. That started quite early, I would say. And yeah, after, after high school, I went uh, to Heidelberg University to go for math school. And actually, already in my um, first or even second semester, I really became fascinated by the brain. It was during my anatomy courses. Pretty early, I started a research project. Yeah, it was really in a basic neuroscience lab looking for for calcium signaling, so um, like how um, neurons communicate with, e with each other. Then um, there was a possibility to do both, like do med school and study biology. So I went into an MD-PhD program. During med school, I, I went also to Switzerland for parts of my medical training, and then I went to the US for internships. I was a year um, in New York um, and was in the neurological intensive care unit. And actually, it was great to work with the patients, but it was also sometimes very sad because if you are in neurology or psychiatry, you have a lot of cases where you can just give diagnosis, but they are often not treatment options. So I thought I, I really should go back um, to the lab and learn more and train better. And um, because if you know the basics, um, what is going on in the brain on the basic science level, we will probably um, be able to develop better treatment options. And ended up at the ETH in Switzerland, um, ended a PhD there. At the moment, I'm doing both. So I'm a, a postdoc um, at the ETH at the Brain Research Institute doing fundamental neuroscience in um, in the stroke field. And on the other hand, I'm a medical doctor. I'm in my residency training um, for becoming a neurologist. And it's kind of fascinating that on the one hand, I'm, I'm caring for patients. And on the other hand, I'm in the lab. Anasopia's research used light to spur nerve growth in brain tissues that had experienced stroke. We will get back to the use of light to control neurons in living tissue, called optogenetics, but started out by asking what exactly a stroke is. Stroke is basically an insult to the brain. It can happen all of a sudden because a blood vessel is blocked. 
either by we say a thrombus, so um, some particle that blocks um, the the artery that supplies the brain with oxygen and glucose and all the very important metabolites. That's the most common form of stroke. That's an, the so-called ischemic stroke. That's like 90% of all strokes. And then you have like a 10% of patients that have a hemorrhagic stroke, meaning that a blood vessel in the brain ruptures and you have like um, intensive blood there. But this kind of stroke is less severe usually because the neurons it's, uh, themselves are not that much damaged. The causes are, are different, for example, that, that you have a, um, underlying heart disease where the blood gets blocked, basically. The main difference is that either the, the blood vessel is blocked and the, the nerve cells that are supplied with glucose and oxygen, those are the most important components for the nerve cells to survive. So if they don't get the glucose and the oxygen, they start to die. And this is happening in the ischemic stroke versus the hemorrhagic stroke, where you just have a rupture of the blood vessel and the blood is everywhere in the brain tissue. Strokes often lead to a loss of motor control when the brain's connections to nerves have been damaged. At the heart of Anna Sophia's research is the growth of nerve fibers in the corticospinal tract. We asked her to talk with us about what her team has already been able to accomplish to date in promoting the growth of new nerve fibers and how this work led to their present study. I'm coming from a lab that is uh, working for the last 20 years on a growth-promoting therapy. So um, basically the central nervous system, we have, let's say, growth-promoting factors like nerve growth factor, for example. And then you also have like inhibiting factors um, that prevent nerve cells to, to grow and to form synapses and so on. And one of um, this inhibitory protein and probably one of the most important inhibitory proteins is the so-called no-go protein that was discovered by, by my boss, uh, Martin Schwab. And actually, there's a lot of literature on that. Um, and uh, we did it in different uh, kind of uh, models like spines. So we started in spinal cord injury and now stroke that we find if we um, produce antibodies and put like a therapy and so get antibodies against this inhibitory, growth inhibitory protein in the central nervous system, we can basically uh, get rid of this um, natural barrier, let's say, so that the nerve cells start to regrow. So we, we, we enhance the repair um, after um, sudden S injury. So in previous work, when I started my PhD, I basically found that if you have a large stroke and you first apply for two weeks this growth promoting antinogo immunotherapy, and then afterwards you have re intensive rehabilitative training of this, uh, then you have like nearly, uh, you have a wonderful recovery rate. Um, over 80 or 90 percent and so actually um, so we already knew that this kind of um, rehabilitative approach plus pharmatherapy work and so the idea was so we have a, a very efficient therapy and now we wanted to see with the optogenetics and the rehab so this combination we could get the same effect. Optogenetics is a technique in which laser light is used to control cells in living tissue. These cells, which are typically neurons, can be closely controlled, allowing researchers to pinpoint their therapies. Even in animals that are both awake and moving freely, we asked Anna Sophia to describe how the technique was used in her team's study. 
So we have rats trained in this in a, in a grasping task. So basically, the animals have to have to learn to grasp for a sugar pellet. So they develop kind of um, a preference, a poor preference. Like also humans have a have a preference right versus a left side. So those rats are, are trained very well in this grasping task, and then we um, have the stroke. And then we decided for different treatment groups. Um, there's a lot of capacity in the brain to compensate for any um, injury. So um, the brain itself does wonderful work um, by having all this intrinsic repair machinery. But we have to, you know, furthermore stimulate it at the right time that we get something out of it or even make it better. And if we if we interfere at the at the at the wrong time point, we can even destroy this ongoing repair process that is there itself by the brain, like physiologically. And so, actually, from previous work, we know that the first two weeks are kind of important. Within the first two weeks, a lot of intrinsic repair mechanisms are probably ongoing in the brain, and you have to be very careful within this first two weeks. And you need to um, stimulate, um, further stimulate this reorganization and growth process that is ongoing. And then you have probably a second phase, which we knew from previous work um, after, let's say, after two weeks, from two weeks to four weeks, um, where you have to consolidate the, the grown um, new um, nerve fibers and circuits, basically. And so what we did was we decided that one group should get the stimulation of this intact corticospinal tract for two weeks. And then after this training for two weeks in a single pellet grasping task, comparable like to rehabilitative training. Um, so this was basically the, the most important group and all the other groups are kind of control groups. If this, this treatment, first optogenetic stimulation and then training afterwards, um, works best. So we have one group that just gets optogenetic stimulation of the corticospinal tract, and then another group that just gets delayed training to exclude that the training alone has a major effect. And then we obviously have also um, rats without any treatment to see maybe there is some spontaneous recovery that you cannot exclude, and so you always need this kind of control group. Long before medical interventions can move on to human trials, studies are typically carried out first in rodents, such as mice and rats. Anna Sophia followed a strict protocol to create the proper conditions for inducing stroke among rats, followed by a strict regimen for helping them regain their motor controls. Here she describes how she set up these experiments. I think the whole neuroscience community became crazy about um, this optogenetics because for the first time it became kind of possible to really have like a causal um, study. You know, you turn off or turn on neurons, you turn off and turn on um, circuit like um, shutting on and off a light and you can see when you manipulate at a distinct neuron or cortical network what's going to happen with the behavior output. So this is basically a fantastic technology. And so we get rid of all this uh, correlative stuff. Now we can really say we manipulate at a specific location somewhere in the brain and we get this 
kind of output in the behavior. So the problem with the optogenetics is really that it's really hard to to get it into into human trials. The problem is that optogenetics means that you have a light sensitive channel and the genetics of this channel um, have to be brought into the, the cell that they express this light sensitive channel that you can basically with the light shut on and off this nerve cell. And the problem is you need viruses as like, let's say as carriers to get the information for this light sensitive channel into the nerve cell. And those viruses, um, usually um, nowadays adenoviruses are used, but one is still very cautious. One still uses it on a, on an animal level. Basically it's now in monkeys and, um, and rodents. But um, the problem is really this virus that everyone is, is scared that um, with this virus uh, bringing in this light-sensitive channels um, that you don't cause any harm. There's some ongoing work for eye diseases um, because if you have like um, a degeneration of in the retina, something like that, specific cells in the retina, um, it's easier to, to get also the, the light in, right? Because the eye is exposed to the light, obviously. So there are, in, in this kind of direction, there are some efforts also um, going into clinical trials. In 2010, the interdisciplinary research journal, Nature Methods, named optogenetics the method of the year across all fields of science and engineering. That year, the journal Science also highlighted it as a breakthrough of the decade. For researchers to gain control over individual neurons in living tissue through optogenetics, light-sensitive proteins must be introduced in the brain, carried by viruses which target the intended cells. Here, Anna Sophia discusses the benefits and challenges of using optogenetics in her research. You want to target a specific uh, nerve fiber tract. In this case, it was um, this corticospinal tract responsible for the sensory motor function. And basically, with a virus that um, you have to use to get this light-sensitive channel in, you um, inject it, and um, so we inject it in the spinal cord and in the brain, and it was like a dual virus approach. And so when both viruses, the one injected in the brain and the one injected in the spinal cord meet, they express the um, the light sensitive channel basically, and with that we made sure that only this corticospinal, so the protecting neurons, were basically having this light sensitive channel. And with that, we had only those neurons ex ex expressing the construct. So we used in this paper two different um, light-sensitive constructs or like light-sensitive channels. And depending on the construct, you have to use different length of light. For let's say for the activating or the stimulating uh, construct, we use um, a blue light because the optogenetic construct was the so-called channel Rhodopsin. And then we also wanted to shut off um, nerve cell activity for the second part. And then we used the green light, basically. The wavelength you use depends on the construct. And then we had the different fiber implants so that we had another level of specificity. In order to determine how successful the treatments were in regaining motor function, Anna Sophia had to develop a method to determine if the behaviors that rats engaged in after having a stroke induced was the same motor function that had previously been damaged, or if it was a new coping strategy which they learned after the stroke. To achieve this, she teamed up with computer scientists who applied machine learning algorithms to examine videos of rats grasping postures before and after the stroke. Obviously, if you want to show that therapy works, you have to 
precisely quantify the, the motor output. So the problem is that um, usually if you, for example, if you do like a behavior and testing and assess, assessment of the, of the rats, uh, it can be very subjective. So you, you put different people in front um, of the, of the grasping box where the rat uh, is sitting and grasping and probably they will come out with different results. So we wanted something very objective and we also found that if we just do video recordings and somehow get the trajectories of uh, the grasping itself, it, it would not help and would be not be not very precise. So we had not a high speed camera, it was um it was a, a normal camera basically and we used a mirror so that we could get the front um the, the front view and um the side view of the grasping red on the video recording. And then the very close collaboration with uh, Pjorn Omer's group in Heidelberg, they do computer vision. And so they got those um, videos and basically they developed algorithms which would learn different grasping postures. So like perfect grasping postures during this grasping for the sugar palate. And so they trained um, their machines with this, um, let's say, the, the perfect grasping that they would in the end be able to distinguish um, whole um, sequences of grasping, so whole sequences of, of, of frames and, and could really um, say at which time point during the grasping something's uh, not going well. And in the end, we, we could really distinguish whole sequences of postures and be very precise and ca could really say, okay, um, this is not just somehow recovery of function and um, it's really true recovery because the postures, um, what we got after the treatment were the same than before the stroke versus compensation would be that the postures are different but the rats get still the, the sugar palate. Basic science, especially when it is to be the foundation of future human trials, requires a very high quality of controls. Here, Anna-Sophia tells us more about the controls they used in the study to ensure that their results were as unassailable as possible. Clinical trials like this uh, double-blinded studies, that's one of the prerequisites for, for like, good clinical studies, especially in uh, phase two or phase three for, um, yeah, if you want to get a, a medication into the prescription for the patients. But um, in basic science, with the behavior, as said before, the problem is it can be very um, subjective. And we try to get rid of this feature by actually having the computer scientists doing um, the, the analysis of, of our readouts. And obviously, they, they don't know. And they just look on a pixel based. And in, in the end, the algorithm of the computer decides. And so they would usually just get different folders with just um, group numbers, but don't know anything about the treatment of the animals. And that also helps us um, to verify that, you know, sometimes obviously you hope that you, you get something out of it, but sometimes, yeah, you still have to be really, really critical. And so um, for me, it was really, really helpful to have this close co collaboration with um, someone who is no biologist and, and see that they can kind of get the same results with their um, method and what we get if we just um, do like the, the manual um, uh, analysis. 
this is kind of our, let's say, planning and we, what we also try to do. The person that has to do the, the behavior training and testing doesn't know which animals belong to which treatment group. So there is a code somewhere, but the person who does this training doesn't know the code and is just informed at the end when everything is done. Anna Sophia is a neuroscientist as well as a physician, but she's not a computer scientist or engineer. To conduct her research, she collaborated with colleagues in diverse fields to bring skills necessary for a successful study. This type of interdisciplinary research is quickly becoming a standard for research in many disciplines, as she discussed with us next. And what is challenging right now in the neuroscience field is that for really good um, studies, you need a, a very interdisciplinary team. And I think also this study would have not been possible if, for example, I had a, a wonderful um, engineer at the institute who built these uh, three laser approaches. And uh, then obviously the computer scientists with the um, algorithm. Yeah, there are so often very different challenges, like on the biological level, obviously, but then on the technical level, on the analysis level. And um, I think... Um, yeah, you need to have this interdisciplinary team. And I think this is now what's going on um, in the neuroscience field that you have whole neural networks, natural, uh, network rewiring. It becomes so complicated that you need all those different people um, coming together, <laughs> working at, at, uh, at one project. And, and I think this is uh, wonderful, but on the other hand, very challenging also. And, and you see this in the neuroscience field. Yeah, this becomes more and more um, important. And so what's also kind of fascinating for me also for this study, so me as the biologist or medical doctor, I do, I do my, um, so I, I work with my rats, I do my surgeries, uh, I do the implantations and so on. But it was kind of funny because when your work is done, the computer scientists start their work because they have to do all the analysis and the algorithms. And um, I had to, be, to, to learn to be very, very patient that, <laughs> that obviously um, once you are done, they need again one a year or one or, or two, even two years, right? Till they have developed the algorithms and you think, why are they so slow? <laughs> Optogenetically stimulated rats not only had better pawl and forelimb function after motor control training, but they also developed new neurons. This effect was enhanced both in the near term as well as over time by anti-no-go immunotherapy. We asked Anna Sophia to help us understand the importance of her study in the larger context of research on stroke recovery, as well as what direction this line of research might take her next. We see with this study, it's kind of proof of principle that if you very precisely stimulate this intake corticospinal tract, let's say here now using optogenetics, you get a very good readout. And if you then combine it with rehabilitative training, we had a like nearly a 100% recovery rate. And um, we think that it's kind of proof of principle that, for example, if you um, use transcranial magnetic stimulation, what is already used in patients, if you try to target also this intact corticospinal tract in humans and then combine it with 
um, rehabilitative therapy afterwards, that this would be a very nice protocol, like an optimized protocol for um, uh, TMS studies or also transcranial direct current stimulation studies. And so for the antinogo therapy, we, we are quite far. I mean, so we are already, we have in spinal cord injury, we had a, a phase one clinical trial, like a safety trial in spinal cord injury, which was very good. So no basically side effects. So there's a large a multicenter um, trial in spinal cord injury organized also by our lab. It, it's ongoing for spinal cord injury and we are right now also um, planning like a, a clinical trial in stroke um, patients, which is probably like phase 1B, phase 2, because uh, the, the safety is already done for, for the antibody itself. It's um, more about now thinking when to apply the antibody and when to apply the intensive rehab that that we get the, the, the best outcome in the patients and obviously all the ethical uh, stuff to go through. And so for the optogenetics, um, as said, there, there is still some, some time up because there's at the moment no, no, uh, no good way or no safe way to, to, to bring this uh, light sensitive channels, um, somehow in the nerve cells. But yeah, there's a lot of, uh, effort taking into this issue by, by labs all around the world. But at least um, at, at the moment, this uh, basic science study or our science study with optogenetics in rats shows that we can still uh, try to take the, the methods that are already available for, for um, stroke patients, which is uh, transcranial cranial magnetic stimulation or a transcranial um, direct current stimulation and uh, target this corticospinal tract and um, hopefully get a better outcome. That was Anna-Sophia Wall discussing her article, Optogenetically Stimulating Intact Rat Corticospinal Tract Post-Stroke Restores Motor Control Through Regionalized Functional Circuit Formation, published on October 30th, 2017 in the journal Nature Communications. You'll find a link to her paper on parsingscience.org, along with bonus content and other materials that she discussed during the show. Next time on Parsing Science, we'll be joined by Sarush Bosugi from the Media Lab at MIT. He will talk with us about his new article in Science, The Spread of True and False News Online. The surprise finding didn't really surprise us that much, mostly because our previous analysis showed that false news is apparently more novel than true news, and obviously you would expect people to be more surprised when they see something novel. We hope that you will join us again.